We have been following uh, readings that are set by the common lectionary, readings that are followed by uh, major churches right around the world as we uh, focus on Luke's gospel. And in particular, at this stage, we're following the journey of Jesus towards Jerusalem, what's known as Luke's travel narrative. And uh, that's picked up in the opening uh, line of this particular section of Luke. Um, Jesus is now has turned, set his face towards Jerusalem, is leaving Galilee to the north, and his journey could take him through two different routes. One route would be uh, through Samaria, which is the more direct route, uh, and the other is to sort of go around the other side of the River Jordan and come loop around back towards Judea. And most uh, Judeans, those who uh, uh, identify with Judaism, um, would take the route that would avoid Samaria, and come around and enter into Jerusalem by the, uh, the other side of the Jordan. We're told Jesus, on his way, travelled in the route that took him through Samaria, and that what a different uh, range of people that he encountered as he went. So when the verse starts with, now on his way to Jerusalem, it's not just a, um, a minor visit or as it happens type of thing. This becomes the way, the mission and ministry that Jesus is fulfilling in that journey to Jerusalem. And it's no accident that the very first name that was given to the Christian movement before even the notion of Christian as a label was identified was the way. Those who joined Jesus on his way became disciples and followers on the way. And uh, Jesus, as he engaged with various people, was often disrupted in his journey. So one of the things we notice about the example of Jesus is much we learn from his teaching. There's much that we learn from his actions. But even his mode of mission and ministry is interesting, that it wasn't so much a a predetermined schedule. He had a journey to fulfill, but he was very open to being... Uh, distracted or to be disrupted, to be, uh, have people call him aside and to seek his time, his attention. That in itself is something that's worth reflecting upon in our Western culture. Uh, for those who are very task-orientated, it can become quite frustrating if you have a particular task or a time frame that you need to keep to. I'm often mindful of that. I need to get to an event by a certain time and disruptions come up come across various people and you think, no, this conversation matters. And uh, sometimes we'd have to give ourselves a bit more space to be disrupted. Um, In the last uh, 24 hours, the Archbishop of Canterbury has been visiting us here in Adelaide in a series of events. He's had an incredibly busy uh, schedule and program. That strikes me how he never looks rushed. He's amazing how he's... Even last night, we had 700 people in the entertainment centre, 70 tables of 10 gathered, all hoping for their moment with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Quite a few doing their selfies along the way. Um, And David Bassett was in his element organising a visit to each of the table groupings to have a photo for each table, and David was doing what David does, organising people. It just occurred to me um, how difficult it would be for the Archbishop of Canterbury with his table right in the centre of that crowd to discreetly leave the room for whatever reason he may want to do so. Because whenever he got up and passed a table, everyone 
disrupted him. <laughs> just wanted, just while you're there, just a moment, just to have a word and, and so on. And he handled that with enormous grace. Jesus welcomed those disruptions. Those moments were actually part and parcel of his mission and ministry. And sometimes they took surprising directions. Back in our annual vestry meeting early in the year, back in uh, April, we did some vision planning. We did some thinking about some areas of how can we provide opportunities for people to gather together, to build community, to uh, build relationships that we see as so central. And it's been exciting to see six or seven of those ideas now moving into implementation. We have various groups happening and gathering. And we should never forget that as much as we plan those types of strategies, if you like, or a sense of this is uh, something we want to bring a focus to, we should recognise that some of those may end up going in directions we hadn't anticipated. We might be taken by surprise by the way in which they, we thought it might develop in this way and something quite different happens. It might be a disruption. And those disruptions may very often, not always, but very often be ones that God has placed in our path. So we have Jesus who is disrupted in his journey. Now let me just set the, the, uh, the background why the information that Luke gives us, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Galilee is to the north um, and there's a whole range of different uh, groupings in Galilee including a number of Judeans and others. Uh, Samaria was part of the territory that in the Old Testament was known as the Northern Kingdom. So back when uh, Israel split between, into two kingdoms, the, the north and the south, the south was focused around Judea and Jerusalem, and they had one and a half of the tribes, the half being the Levites, and the Northern Kingdom, ten and a half of the tribes, separated themselves off um, and made Samaria as their capital. And things did not go well for them. They were renowned, if you read the books of one and two kings, for just how faithless they were. They lost their obedience and their attentiveness and the, the, uh, all that was expected under their relationship with God. And eventually, despite the, the prophet's warnings, they didn't change and judgment came upon them. They were defeated by the Assyrians in 722 and never really returned to that space. They intermarried and whilst they still had those ties, they weren't regarded by the Judeans as the true faithful family. They were the the black sheep or the people who had uh, lost their way and lost their identity. So there was bad blood between the Judeans and the Samaritans. They would go on other sides of the street to avoid one another. So Jesus was absolutely conscious of this. As I said before, Jesus in his teaching, in his parables, in his observations of various people and in his encounters, very often choose the most unlikely people that he would point to the religious people to saying, and you can learn from these people. And you could almost hear them saying, those people, they've messed their lives up. They've made some dreadful choices and now that they're in this messy state. 
So when we, Jesus comes to the village, there are 10 men who had leprosy who met him. Now, leprosy um, was subject to enormous amount of stigma. It was believed to be incredibly infectious, so much so that anyone who had leprosy had to remove themselves from a village and live just outside the village. And if people approached them, they were instructed to call out saying, don't come near us, we have leprosy, keep, keep it a distance. Imagine that stigma of having to go through that. But it wasn't just the fear of physical infection for leprosy, it was also the spiritual uh, uncleanness. So they were regarded as um, spiritually unclean, religiously unclean, and were not able to enter into any of the gathering points for worship of the community. They were excluded because they were spiritually tainted. So these are people who would absolutely be viewed as the pariahs, as the, as the outliers to be avoided. So much so that if any clean person, any person within the community came in contact, they had to go through a ritual purification process to, to wash the taint off themselves. So these are the people who disrupted Jesus in his journey. And they call out and said, have pity on us. And they recognise Jesus as an exceptional person with authority. Jesus, master, have pity on us. So Jesus saw them and said, go, show yourselves to the priests. That's a process of being cleansed. And as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw he was healed, they were healed, came back, praising God with a loud voice. So I want to focus on why is this passage something that continues to speak and inform us today. And it certainly does point to the capacity, the power of Jesus uh, and of God to bring healing. And I don't want to underestimate that. But the point actually is a, bit, is a deeper one than that. And it's a simple one, but a profound one. I'm not going to go at it at length. It doesn't need to have a whole lot of commentary around it. But I want to just point out what's happening here and why we might, uh, how we can le- learn from it. So we have these uh, nine people who we later discover were most likely Judeans or Galileans who identify with um, the faith of Judaism and one Samaritan. And it was that one Samaritan who returned and threw himself at the feet of Jesus. Eugene Peterson is the, uh, uh, was an author. If you know the message, is a wonderful paraphrase of the Bible and of the Psalms and uh, others. Uh, he also wrote a number of excellent uh, books on spiritual practice and uh, pastoral ministry. One of his books on pastoral ministry I read at least 25 years ago, probably about 30 years ago. It had a couple of pages that just spoke to me so uh, powerfully that it's, has stayed with me. What Eugene Peterson said in that one, uh, speaking to pastors, when people come to a pastor with a presenting problem and seek some prayer and some support, Eugene Peterson said, you know, almost invariably, just below the surface of whatever the presenting issue is, is a deeper question. Where is God in the midst of my life, my experience of whatever it is I'm going through? Where is God to be found? And as I've stayed with me, that's often true, isn't it? Asking, where is God in the midst of 
wherever we are in our life, whatever stage of life we are, whatever the experience might be, more often than not, when we have difficulties, when we encounter challenges, when things are becoming tough and we feel as though, is God there? Does God care? Piano and I had one of those moments during our time at Lambeth. Um, as we'd gathered and had entered into and were enjoying the, uh, the, the retreat time and the various programs and activities um, as we gathered, then I, uh, as many of you would know, heard of my, the death of my father in Sydney um, and then uh, discovering that we, it wasn't easy to come back. It was uh, near impossible to find a flight to return to join the rest of my family and to have the, the funeral. Eventually managing to find uh, some two seats after the amazing work from Phil Hoffman Travel, which we highly commend. Um, and then getting COVID and not being able to travel. And it's in those sort of moments where we ask, where's God in the midst of this? We ask ourselves that question. You know, why did he bring us here? And to suddenly find ourselves in this incredibly frustrating and uh, heart-wrenching situation. You know, very often, there's no answer to the question why. Not even sure it's worth asking. Occasionally, there might be some insight we will see at a later stage why things happen. But I think why is actually a very frustrating question to answer. What we did ask ourselves is, where is God in the midst of this moment? Is God caring for us? And we stopped intentionally and began to count, well, we're actually surrounded by friends we're surrounded by people who are caring and leaving food parcels and little packages for us outside the door and making contact and calling up to us through the window as we were in isolation. And we had a medical team we could draw on if we needed to and we had a conference that has organised food to be delivered to our door. There was so much that we could be thankful for and were thankful. God was present and ministering to us. How does that speak into this situation? You see, the ten received what they were wanting. They got the answer they wanted. They were healed of their leprosy. They were able to go and exercise a new freedom and no longer had that stigma. They got what they wanted. Only one of the ten saw something deeper in that. They saw God at work in their life. And that is why he returned to Jesus and praised God. It wasn't just Jesus and how amazing his power and ability to bring the healing. They saw God at work through Jesus. And the act of throwing himself at the feet of Jesus is an act not just of gratitude. It's an act of praise. It's an act of devotion. God, you have given me new life. I now give that life back to you. That's what worship is actually means and Jesus says oh yes and he's a Samaritan you can learn from the faith of the Samaritan he doesn't mention it but the point is quite clear the other nine didn't respond in faith they went their way with what they had wanted but they did not respond with that faith and thankfulness and dedication to God so Jesus says these beautiful words, stand up, not just physically stand up, but a sense of stand in your own right. You can stand in this community now. You can stand with your head 
held high. You are no longer unclean. And go. Because if you want to follow me, if you want to dedicate yourself to me, I'm on a journey. And I want you to join me in that journey. We're on the move. There's the mission and the ministry of God to be done. And you are now one of the team. Your faith has healed you. Now the word healed is one of those words in Greek that actually can uh, become an onion. It has a whole different number of layers to it. It can mean physical healing and it does mean that in this case. It can also mean spiritual healing, social healing, religious healing, healing in terms of their whole relationship with God. It's all those bundled together. Your faith in recognising God has is, is, uh, known you by name and given you this new life, this new space, the freedom that goes with it. And Jesus says to us, we can learn from this man. Our readings through uh, Timothy, 1 or 2 Timothy, come uh, not chosen because of their obvious connection with the readings in Luke. We're just reading our way through 1 and 2 Timothy, but it's intriguing how every week we can see points of connection as we read those passages as well. And Paul is making the same response here. Once we recognise how God has brought salvation into our life, he has saved us, he has healed us, he has restored us, how might we respond? And Paul has a series of uh, statements under his um, uh, trustworthy sayings. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with Christ, we will also live with him. That is God's grace. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We, if we are able to hang in there and to see the race through. Then the negatives. If we disown him, he will also disown us. In other words, God is not going to twist our arms. If we choose to distance ourselves, he's not going to twist our arm and say, no, I'm not going to let you force you back. But if we are faithless, this is where the twist comes. He remains faithful because it's just simply not in God's character, in God's being to be faithless. He's unable to be faithless. The promises he has made, the assurances he has given, he will honour. Anyone who turns and returns to Christ, who says, I've made a mess of things, I've stumbled, I've gone off the route, I don't know what I was thinking, whatever the circumstance, God has promised forgiveness and healing and being back into that new life that comes. So Paul says, well, how can we respond to that? Now, you start to have a negative. I didn't pick up the negative. But first of all, he says, don't waste time arguing with words in your churches. Don't waste time quarreling. It doesn't achieve anything. Now, I'm sure he was talking about churches back there because we would never do that these days. You know, it doesn't need a commentary, does it? It is of no value, he says, and it only ruins those who listen. Uh Yeah, yeah. Let's move on. Paul says, how positively can we respond? Do your best. Not saying be perfect, but do your best to present yourself as to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed because we've tried our best. How? Who correctly handles the word of truth, who seeks God's wisdom, God's revelation 
through the Bible and through the ministries that God has given us of prophecy and others, we've sought to listen and to hear and to, to sit with and to respond in ways which honour him. This is what we see modelled in his own way through the one who returned to Jesus. You might have noticed that we have uh, reintroduced a, uh, an ancient and time-honoured practice of doxology. We gather together at our, our church gatherings, we, uh, we praise God together in song and we read the Psalms and we pray and we hear God's word and we reflect on it and we go on the basis of that to prayer and, and recognise our part in the world. All these things that we do, we gather at the table and we see the assurances of God's full benefits of what God has done in Christ is represented in the bread and the wine. How can we respond to that? Now, at one level, we are quite good at the go and peace, the love and serve the Lord. We think, let's go out there now. We've been encouraged and we, there's things to be done. And for the more activists of us, that's actually not so bad. Love to have be given a job. What we are not so good at in our Western culture, which is focused on time and clocks and when's the coffee going to be put on, and all the, I, that's a personal confession, sorry. But I, we're not good at sitting and being still and reflecting and saying, what does this actually mean for my relationship with God and my relationship with my brothers and sisters and with my neighbourhood and those that I'll encounter this week? The ancient practice is the practice of doxology. The word just simply means an expression of praise to God. We see it modelled in every one of the New Testament letters, Paul and Hebrews and Peter and John. They all respond at the end with a statement of praise to God for what we have just had revealed to us. And it's good for us as we gather to sit for at least a few moments and to praise God and to thank God and to do exactly what the Samaritan leper did, to throw ourselves on our knees mentally, if not physically, before Jesus. Not just with thank you, but a renewed commitment to be loyal, to live out this new life in a way which honours him. So we will do that today as is our practice, but I encourage it, listen to the words, give voice to it, even sing aloud to it, um, because it is such an important part of our hearing and responding and learning from the Samaritan leper. Amen.